Dr. Adam Grant, you're an organizational psychologist. Can you tell me just a little bit about what that actually means? Yeah, I, I definitely can't cure your OCD if you have it. I don't know how to organize your closet. What I do is I study how to make work better. And so that might mean redesigning jobs to make them more meaningful and motivating, trying to build cultures of creativity and generosity in teams, or even trying to make entire organizations more productive. Okay, fantastic. First and foremost, obviously, this is a, a global health crisis, an economic crisis. But for many millions of us, we're just battling this, this loss of normalcy in our, in our daily lives. How well prepared do you think we are as human beings to deal with a situation like this? Does it play to any of our natural strengths or is it more likely to expose our weaknesses? Oh, I think it's a little bit of both, like everything else. I guess I sound like a social scientist right now, right? <laughs> it depends is always the answer. But I think the, you know, the, the challenging part is as human beings, we don't like uncertainty and unpredictability. There's even some evidence that if you're highly neurotic, you actually prefer experiencing pain over being in the dark about what you're going to experience. And I think that that's a part of the crisis that's really challenging a lot of us. On the flip side, we're highly adaptable. Uh, Darwin actually wrote when he was building his theory of evolution that one of the things that natural selection favors is a sense of flexibility. And it's not always the strongest species that survives, it's sometimes the most adaptable. So I think that you know, we've, we've all lived that, right? We've, we've been through crises before. And I think one of the ways we can cope with the uncertainty is to say, look, when you can't imagine the future, when it's very difficult to, to know when this is going to end and how it's going to end, you can actually rewind and think more about the past. And when you do that, you can recognize hardships that you've faced before. You can learn something from the lessons of your own resilience. And then knowing, of course, this is a different kind of crisis, try to figure out what did I do effectively before that might work for me today? I still hear a lot of people complaining about FOMO, the sort of the fear of missing out, even though there's nothing really going on. Um, has, has, <laughs> yeah. has, has, has COVID killed FOMO or exacerbated it, in your opinion? Oh, I, I think it's, again, a little bit of both. I think there's FOMO around all the things that we could be doing but aren't, even though no one else is doing them either. Right? There's a sense that you know we're, we're losing. So far, we've lost a, a month of quality experience out in the world. At the same time, though, I think it's a little bit easier to tolerate that, that sense of missing out when you know it's just not available. Uh, but I, I prefer to think about this less in terms of FOMO and, and more in terms of what's often called JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. Uh, I actually made a list of all the things I'm thrilled that I don't have to do. And that list includes changing out of sweatpants. It also includes having to commute. Uh, I definitely have gotten to avoid a lot of awkward interactions with strangers and maybe even a few awkward interactions with people I know. And I think this is actually a practice that's pretty useful for people. We have a lot of evidence that marking moments of joy can actually create those moments of joy because we're more likely to notice them. We're more likely to savor them and share them. And so being able to, to just capture a few things that, that are really joyful about getting to stay home, even though you know, it's not all flex time and family time, seems like a productive step. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and I think for me, because I'm a huge sports fan and obviously all sport has been cancelled, I'm just trying to think about how great next year will be. Like you're going to have an extra Olympics when there wasn't meant to be one. Is that a, a useful technique, focusing on future enjoyment? Yeah, I think so. Mental time travel is a powerful skill. So we talked about rewinding. There's also value in fast forwarding and imagining all these things that we have to look forward to. I think, you know, some of that, some of that's going to be hopefully on the horizon in the near future. Some of that also is going to happen in the present. I know the NBA has been talking about playing a giant virtual game of horse. 
And I, I think that would be a blast because unlike regular basketball games, I can actually participate in horse, right? I can, I can try to emulate the shot that LeBron James picks. So I feel like there, there may be even some things to look forward to that are coming up right around the corner. Turning more specifically to the world of work, I mean, we're all separated from, from our teams. Um, how, how can we maintain a sense of belonging while also isolated at home? Oh, I don't know that it's easy. Probably the, the best thing that I've seen is I've seen a couple of different companies get on Zoom or Blue Jeans and quickly discover that they're just tired of looking at screens. Uh, and sometimes that's meant then switching to audio where we can relax our eyes a little bit. In other cases, they've said, though, let's, let's try to spice up a little bit the visual images that we're getting. And in one company, they actually did a, a virtual tour of their home offices. And they had everyone go around and say, okay, look, this is where I'm working at home. Uh, this is the closet that I'm holed up in. <laughs> this is my desk. And that gave them the chance to talk about some of the mementos that they keep nearby. Uh, they you know, were often showing off pictures that their kids drew for them. And it was actually a great moment of, of real personal connection in a way that never would have happened if everyone was in the office. And I'm not suggesting that that's the perfect fit for everyone, but to me, it seemed like a small step that can make a meaningful difference in feeling like, well, I learned something new about my colleagues. I see them more as human beings as opposed to just achievement robots. And I'm talking about teams. Every team has its introverts and extroverts. Do you think this crisis has, has leveled the playing field between them? I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> so I've, I've been doing research on introverts and extroverts for over a decade. And I found that consistently extroverts are stereotyped as better team members and better leaders, even though empirically that's not actually true. I found that introverts are every bit as effective as extroverts when you look not only at their leadership skills, but the actual performance, productivity, and profitability of the teams and companies that they run. Um, I found that extroverts are stereotyped as better salespeople. Uh, they're not. Actually, the best salespeople in my data are not introverts or extroverts. They're ambiverts. But what in the world is an ambivert? <laughs> is the next, you know, the next logical question. So an ambivert is somebody who's in the middle of the spectrum between introversion and extroversion. And like most personality traits, introversion and extroversions normally distributed. It's shaped like a bell curve. And so there are people on the extremes, but those extremes are actually much less common than people who hover in the middle. And so an ambivert is somebody who's equally comfortable being in the spotlight and maybe fading into the background a little bit, who you know gravitates in some situations toward talking, other situations toward listening. And what I found in sales was that the extroverts sometimes were, were overbearing. Uh, they might have sold too hard. They would talk too much. They didn't listen and learn enough about what the customer really needed. And the introverts were often struggling on the other end of the spectrum, you know, being too quiet, maybe not being assertive enough. And ambiverts had this great flexibility to say, look, there are moments when I'm going to be in introvert mode. There are moments that I'm going to be in extrovert mode. And I think the, the lesson for me from that was, we all need to learn to unleash our inner ambiverts. I think the reality of the current situation is we're still catering to extroversion, right? So the fact that we're now sitting on Zoom calls all day and still you know, feeling like we're in a room with our colleagues, as opposed to saying, you know, maybe we should have fewer meetings. Maybe we should actually you know, weigh in with some of our thoughts by email. Uh, we've known for a while that, that introverts' voices tend to get overlooked uh, in, you know, in, a, in a group setting. 
And so I think this would be a good time to experiment with moving towards some more independent individual work, which we know is actually the best approach if you want to generate lots of good ideas in groups. Um, There's some evidence that individuals uh, will generate more great ideas alone, and groups come up with more good ideas when they're together. And I think in, you know, in, in this case, one of the, the simple practices I would recommend to make sure that introverts don't get drowned out is to shift from brainstorming to brainwriting. So brainwriting is a process where you take all the people in a team, let's say you have eight people in your team, you ask them all to come up with ideas independently and then submit them into the chat function or into a Google Doc, and then you review them And what that does is it leverages individual strengths around coming up with original ideas. And then it also allows the group to do what it does best, which is to begin to evaluate and refine. And, you know, we we have a lot of evidence that that brainwriting technique is actually more effective than just diving right into group brainstorming. So to me, that's that's one of the most it's probably one of the simplest and one of the most effective ways to to make sure that introverts are heard. And I guess part of that is that, I mean, so much of what we contribute at the moment is 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 unseen. I mean, is there is there other ways to sort of stand out from the crowd when you, when you're just that face in, in a Zoom window? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's a great question. Uh, I mean, I guess I guess you can dress up for your next <laughs> your next video conference. Uh, I'm thinking face paint, Braveheart style. Bring it on. But no, I think I actually think that one of the equalizing forces that's in play is you know, because because people who are maybe loud or extremely confident have a slightly harder time commanding the stage right now, that could be an opportunity for people who are quieter, for people who ask more questions to speak up. Uh, but I think most of the video conference tools we have available will still immediately put the loudest person on the screen. And so one thing I'm hoping for is a shift in technology that says, you know what, let's, let's figure out how we can redistribute the airtime to the people who have talked the least, as opposed to the people who talk the loudest. And through this crisis, somehow managing expectations has become even harder. All of a sudden, we're workers, we're teachers, we're providers, we're cleaners. Um, should we even try and keep up? Is, is, this, is this good for our sanity? I don't know. I think this is a time when, when leaders need to be flexible and compassionate. I feel like at some level, we're all that BBC dad now whose kids came dancing into his, his interview. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. You know, I, I know that there are people who are trying to maintain boundaries and you know, get, get focused, but this seems like a great time for, for leaders to back off on FaceTime and say, look, I, I really don't have the option to micromanage you. So maybe I should try this other leadership technique called motivating, <laughs> which, which starts with giving people the freedom to make choices about when they work, how they work, where they work, with whom they work. And I, I think this is, you know, this is not an experiment that any of us opted into, but as long as we're stuck with it, I'd say as a leader, it's an opportunity to say, if I impose less control over, you know, over people's schedules and plans, um, that's, you know, that's going to teach me whether I can trust them or not. And the reality is we, we've known from a couple decades of research on management and monitoring that when people are monitored too closely, that signals distrust. And they respond by saying, look, you know, I'm not trusted, so I don't really feel obligated to act in a way that you might consider trustworthy. Whereas when you give people a little bit of space and you allow them to make some choices, they start to feel a greater sense of loyalty and they reciprocate, excuse me, they reciprocate the trust that they're shown. And so given that that we don't have a lot of options anyway to control people, I think this is the ideal time 
to uh, <laughs> to do a little bit less of it. Is this a particularly challenging time for managers? And, and what advice would you have for them? I think this is a great time, as we were just talking about, for leaders to be more hands-off when it comes to scheduling and planning. Uh, and I think that's where flexibility is needed the most. I think where leaders may be, excuse me, where leaders may need to be a little bit more hands-on is in figuring out how their people are doing on a day-to-day basis. And I think this is this is one place where leaders actually have an opportunity to learn something they otherwise wouldn't have access to. Imagine if you know if you're a manager and you've got 20 or 30 people on your team, how awkward it would be in year two to sit down and say, "Hey, you know, Ross, I realize we've never had this conversation, but I'd love to find out." what you're finding interesting in this job, what aspects of your work you find meaningful, what your favorite projects have been, and then also what are your least favorite tasks and are there changes we can make that would make your job a little bit more exciting. Now, if you take a tool like Qualtrics Remote Work Pulse, you can can survey your employees on that and it wouldn't be at all uncomfortable or out of the ordinary because it's not like you're going to sit down and have a one-on-one with every one of your colleagues face-to-face. And so I think this is a this is a moment when when leaders can take a step back and say, you know what, I haven't always learned as much about my employees' values, interests, strengths, motivations as I should have. Uh, and what better time than now? And I think that's a place to be more hands-on. Great. Um, you've talked and written um, a lot about what you call the givers, takers, and, and, and matchers. Can you describe what this means? And, and does this, this period of self-isolation when working remotely magnify or reduce these qualities? Oh, that's interesting. I would love to have some data on that. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a few hypotheses. But first, so giving, taking, and matching are just different styles of interaction that we bring to the workplace. Givers are people who, by default, want to know, what can I do for you? Takers are the opposite. They're interested in figuring out, what can you do for me? And then matchers kind of hover in the middle of that spectrum, and they say, look, I don't want to be too selfish or too generous. And so I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And I think, you know, at some level, what we're facing right now is, is what in, in psychology we'd call a weak situation rather than a strong situation. So in strong situations, norms and expectations are extremely clear, and there's a lot of structure. In weak situations, there's much more ambiguity and uncertainty, and people have a lot more freedom to express whatever their values and personality traits are. And so given that we're, you know, we're working remotely and, and a lot of us are separated in, in space and sometimes in time from our teams, um, the situation's a lot weaker. That opens the door for us to express whatever our values are. And so my guess is uh, the takers may feel like they have a little bit more license to shirk, uh, maybe to steal credit for other people's ideas, right? They, they might think that they're less likely to get caught in certain situations. I think the givers, though, we've seen an incredible outpouring of generosity in this crisis. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it's brought out the better angels of, of people's nature, whether it's in the healthcare system with people putting their lives on the line to, to take care of the sick, whether it's scientists, you know, working overtime at a scale that I think is unprecedented in human history to try to find a vaccine or, you know, a plasma treatment that might help in the interim. And I think that the, you know, the givers really see this as a situation where they need to step up. They feel a sense of responsibility to try to help. My guess, Ross, and I'm curious to hear your reaction to this, my guess is that matching actually gets uh, sort of weeded out a little bit uh, in these kinds of weak situations because I don't think that most people operate like matchers because it's their core value. I don't think they're, you know, they're wandering around thinking about how do I make sure that I express my fundamental guiding principles in life of keeping you know, track of every credit and debit? 
I think people match because they're afraid of the risks of overcorrecting on either side. And I think in these weak, weak situations, people probably gra- gravitate more toward fundamentally, you know, at a basic level, am I more of a selfish or generous person? What do you think? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think in the sort of the microcosm of our team, we've seen that same sort of solidarity. I mean, obviously, we, in our daily lives, we have different challenges. So we have people on our team who have young kids and I, I don't have children. So we have to step up. We know that we have to step up and, and help them to keep to keep our team going, but also because it's the human thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's quite encouraging in, in many ways. I think so, too. And, you know, it makes me think a little bit. The, one of the big frustrations for givers in, in a situation like this is they don't always know where they can help. So I've had colleagues and former students reach out and say, I'd like to do something. Uh, I don't have healthcare skills or you know, science skills. I, you know, I don't run a warehouse to get people supplies. What can I do to help and support other people? And one of the things we've been trying out recently is a couple of years ago, I, I co-founded a, a knowledge sharing platform called Givitas. And the idea was to make it easy for people to seek and give help in five minutes a day or less. And this platform has been deployed in some really powerful ways for people just to put requests out for what they need. And then sometimes they're in a community with their colleagues. Sometimes they're in a local community, uh, like a university, for example, where they don't even know the other people who are part of that list. But they'll post a request and then somebody who's excited to, to pitch in and contribute can see, hey, here's a problem someone else is facing. And let me see if I can, you know, if I can try to support them. So I would love to see more of those kinds of efforts to make sure that we can make people's needs and requests visible so that the people who have the motivation and the ability to contribute are able to direct their energy in the, you know, in the, the way it's needed. Absolutely. And um, moving on slightly, I think for many of us, the, this boundary between work and life has, has blurred or and, you know, for many people disappeared altogether. Uh, does work-life balance, how does it work in a, a crisis like this? Oh, I, I mean, I think work-life balance has been a myth for a long time. Uh, the, the image I have in mind when I think about work-life balance is, you know, somebody who's, who's walking on a tightrope and feels like they're not going to fall off either side. And I just don't think that's realistic. If you care about your family and you care about your job and you also want to prioritize uh, health and friendships and hobbies, right? Uh, the idea that you might have even a day where all those things are in perfect harmony to me is hysterically funny. Um, if, if not just wrong. I think, though, that the balance can exist on a broader scale. So what I always strive for is balance in a week, where I might have two days in a given week where I'm pretty focused on my work and I don't get as much time with my family as I want, but then I'll have two more days where I'm in family mode and work takes a real backseat. And I think that that's probably the most realistic way to manage this crisis is, is to say, look, you know, instead of work-life balance, we ought to think about work-life rhythm to say there are going to be, you know, there are going to be different parts of the song that repeat at different parts of the week. And, you know, knowing that we're going to come back to that melody, maybe not every day, but every third or fourth day is a way to, to maintain some sanity. I, I also think this depends a lot on whether you tend to be more of an integrator or a segmenter. So this, this is another spectrum of individual differences that my colleague Nancy Rothbard has studied. Uh, integrators are people who actually like to blur the line between work and home uh, or work and the rest of their lives. And so you'll see lots of pictures of their kids on their office desk. Uh, they will you know, frequently talk about work at the dinner table. Segmenters are much more comfortable when they can divide those, those, those lines. Uh, or when they can they can create a you know a clear boundary between who they are at work and other parts of their lives, 
And in Nancy's data, segmenters actually have higher well-being than integrators. Uh, they're, they're able to recharge. They're able to maintain energy. They're not as distracted. And I think this situation is probably a lot harder on segmenters than it is on integrators. I think for a lot of integrators, they're like, you know, virtual home office tour, great. I, I, I invite my colleagues over for dinner anyway, right? And, and segmenters are saying, get out of my house. This is a place where I'm supposed to be with my family, not working. Uh, but I think we can all be a little bit sensitive to that, right? And say, okay, if I have colleagues who have preferences for segmentation, uh, I, I should try hard if they're maintaining some boundaries around time. Uh, and they say, look, you know, between 5 and 7.30 is family time every night. I should really try hard not to step on that, knowing if I'm an integrator, they probably need that more than I do. That's great. And it's interesting because we, we live in a time where I think companies and organizations are starting to take work-life balance more seriously. Are some of them getting it wrong then, their approach to, to this? or I, I think that a lot of these efforts to promote work-life balance are well-intentioned. I think that they're not always well-executed. So Nancy, in one of her studies, she looked at what happens when companies bring in policies that allow on-site childcare, for example, which you know is is a great way to make sure that people can manage you know their their parenting roles and their work roles effectively. And what she found was that if you're a segmenter, you are less satisfied and less committed if your organization offers childcare on-site instead of off-site. There's something about just having children in your place of work that makes it bothers you. It feels unprofessional or maybe it makes you feel guilty that you're not with your kids at that moment. And, you know, that's not to say that organizations shouldn't do on-site child care. Right? It is to say, though, maybe the entrance to on-site child care shouldn't be right at the front door. Uh, maybe it shouldn't be as salient, you know, for uh, for people who, who might find that a little bit, you know, unsettling it at some level. And I think, I don't know, I think when organizations do this well, they give people choices about how they want to blur the boundaries between work and home. One of my favorite examples is, is LinkedIn. They had a, a bring your parents to work day. And it's such a, a fun idea because from their perspective, you know, growing up, your parents attend everything that you do. Uh, they go to every concert and every soccer game and every graduation and, you know, they, they're really proud of you. And then all of a sudden you graduate from whatever your, your last school or degree is and they don't get to celebrate with you anymore and they don't get to see that part of your life. And I, I thought LinkedIn did that really well because people who wanted to bring their parents could, people who wanted to bring someone else could, people who preferred not to bring anyone at all uh, could, you know, could, could make that choice as well. And so I think we, ju we just need flexibility around these kinds of policies. I also wanted to ask you about something you mentioned in a tweet recently where you said that warnings backfire when they rob us of a sense of freedom. Does that explain why some people are not taking the, the rules that have been put in place seriously enough? And talking personally, had a lot of problems getting my father to stay at home. He just seemed to think these things don't apply to him. Is there something about the way that we word these, that governments and companies or experts word these, these, uh, these warnings and this advice that is wrong? I think so. So the, the first time I started thinking about this actually was in studying why people who have season tickets to the basketball team that they love often don't show up for every game. And I, I was working on this project years ago with a, a student at the time, Rachel Penny, and we decided before a big basketball game that we were going to try to motivate fans to show up. And so we, we sent an email to season ticket holders where we had quotes from coaches and players about how energizing it was to have a full stadium or, you know, to make sure there weren't any empty seats in their arena. And it had no effect whatsoever on fan attendance. 
What did work was when we did something different and we just asked a single question when we emailed them, which is, are you planning to attend the game? And what worked there is a question seems to bypass people's natural resistance and defense mechanisms. And it allows them to reflect on the behavior themselves and make the choice that they want to make. And I I think in watching the way that people are communicating about this pandemic, a lot of well-meaning experts have, you know, have have given what, what feel to me like orders. You know, you must stay home. Do not leave your house. Uh, it is extremely dangerous to go outside. And you can say all those things and hope that people will follow. But we've known for over half a century that that a common reaction is what's called psychological reactance, uh, which is sort of that that knee jerk. You can't tell me what to do. I'll get sick if I want to <laughs> sort of response that maybe you've seen with your father and others. And, and so, you know, I think that what seems to work better when, you know, when people have a strong motivation to be in charge of their own destiny and control of their own choices uh, is, you know, is to be a little bit gentler and say, uh, you know, I was just curious, what are your plans for today? And, you know, I know that you're the best person to judge what's healthy and safe for you. Here's the information I've seen. You know, what are you, what are you thinking? Uh, and if you can reinforce that that people have a sense of autonomy and freedom and control and choice, uh, they're a lot more likely to follow through with what they think might be a, an effective and safe behavior. And this this effect of asking questions on changing behavior has been demonstrated for a lot of different kinds of behaviors. We know that you can increase volunteering rates by just asking people, do they plan to volunteer? You can get people to eat healthier, avoid fatty foods brush and floss their teeth just by asking them if they're planning to do it. And so I wonder what would happen if, if you called your father up and said, hey, I was just wondering, are you, are you planning to go and, and get covered in germs today? Or <laughs> you know, I was curious, are you, are you planning to go out today? Or you know, are you planning to try to stay safe at home? Uh, would, would love to hear what you're up to. You also tweeted recently that interruptions are part of our new reality. I, I can certainly agree, agree with that. Um, and I'm sure many people listening are struggling with distractions and procrastination. Is other ways to make ourselves more resilient to this? Oh, I don't know that that resilience is actually possible when it comes to interruptions, because I think the the problem is less that they're a source of hardship or adversity. It's more that that they're distracting, and it's hard to get back into the task. It's hard to find flow and and stay focused. Uh, I think that probably one of the best things we can do is try to find a sense of self compassion. Uh, I think. You know, we've, we talked earlier about being more understanding of others who, you know, who might have a lot on their plates right now. And I think we need to give that same understanding to ourselves. So when, when psychologists like Kristen Neff study self-compassion, they say, look, think of the kindness that you, sh- you would show to a good friend who was in a situation like yours. And then what happens if you apply that same kindness to yourself? So when we get interrupted, instead of getting frustrated and then getting meta frustrated, right? I'm now I'm frustrated that I'm frustrated and I have a whole a whole set of emotions to manage. I can say, okay, this is a really difficult time right now. Uh, in general, interruptions are part of the human condition. They are an intensified part of the human condition during a pandemic. And I know I'm not the only one facing these. And let me just see if, you know, if I can get through today without, you know, without losing control. And then if I don't succeed today, I'll try again tomorrow. And when we don't beat ourselves up like that, it's a lot easier to move forward as opposed to wallowing in all the, the challenges we've we faced in the past. And do, do you think like short term goals like that are, are quite important right now in this particular situation? Yeah, I think so. We, we know from studying burnout that one of the best predictors in, of engagement is not necessarily a major accomplishment. It can actually just be a small win, a sense of daily progress. 
And so, yeah, this is a perfect time to recalibrate goals and and tell yourself, okay, you know, what I used to accomplish in a week, there are times when I feel like I can't pull that off in a day right now. And so if I lower my expectations, I'm going to feel like I'm making more of a dent. I'm going to beat myself up less and I'm probably then going to find some momentum. Okay, so so obviously this crisis will come to an end. Um, do you think there's anything positive that may come out of it? Or, or rather, is there anything that you would like to keep when things return to normal? Yeah, I think... I do think we're going to see a lot of employers embrace more flexibility around working from home and and having virtual teams. I think they're going to find out that it wasn't as impossible as they thought it was. And they're going to see there are some productivity gains that come from not having to commute and getting to work where you want. Uh, My read of the meta-analytic evidence, the studies of studies, suggests that as long as people are in the office a few days a week, working from home one or two days a week does not hurt their satisfaction, their performance, their productivity. So I think that's one good thing that's going to come out of it. On an individual level, you know, I think there, unfortunately, there are some people who are going to face post-traumatic stress. Uh, if you look at data on trauma, about 15% of people, according to most estimates, uh, will come out of trauma with, you know, with some kind of PTSD. That's, I think, the sad news. I would say the encouraging news psychologically is over half of people report a different response to trauma, which is post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth is the sense that, look, I, I wish this didn't happen. If I could, I would go back and undo it. But given that it happened, I feel like I am better in some way having lived through it. It might be a heightened sense of personal strength. You know, I got through that. I can get through almost anything. It could be a deeper sense of gratitude. Wow, I never appreciated how nice it was to be able to show up at work or to be able to take a train or to be able to go to a park. And, you know, now I'm going to be thankful for those experiences in a way that I wasn't before. It could be finding new meaning or seeing new possibilities or, you know, investing more in relationships with the people that, you know, because we were so far apart from them, uh, we now have become even closer to them emotionally. And I think we are going to see those kinds of changes unfold. We've probably already experienced some of them to date. That presumably could have a knock-on effect for, for example, people with disabilities or uh, facing some other challenges with, with societal inclusion. I certainly hope so. I think, you know, workplaces were designed by people who basically fit the dominant majority group. Uh, and usually those are able-bodied people uh, who, have, who are not facing mental illness, uh, unless they're sociopaths, which is a different conversation. <laughs> uh, usually those are, uh, those are white men. Usually those are people who, you know, who excel at whatever skills are part of the core competency of the organization. And I think that means for people who don't fit into any of those categories, there has been, to some degree, a lack of flexibility and support. And I think my hope is that that will improve. Absolutely. Um, do you think that there's a, there's a danger, though, that with everyone being so eager to get back to normal, having gone through this long crisis, how do we make sure that in that eagerness, we also make sure that we learn from this experience? I think that's an interesting question. I guess the first thing I would say is learning from an experience like this comes from reflection. And right now, I'm not worried that people are failing to reflect. Right? I think we, in, in some ways, a lot of people feel like they have too much downtime and reflection is turning into rumination. I think as a leader, though, as, you know, as people come out of this crisis and start coming back to work in, in the next few, I hope, months, the first thing that I would do is I would have a discussion about what everyone learned from the experiments they ran. Some of those experiments were by force, others were by choice, but we've all had to test out different routines in the way we work. 
that might be about when we work. It might be about who we interact with. It might be about the tools or the places that we choose to get our projects done. But I'd want to go around the room and hear what everyone tested out, what worked and what didn't. And then why not keep evolving what we thought were our best practices in light of that? And, you know, for me, that that would be something that you continue doing to say, okay, look, nobody's forced to work from home all the time anymore. But that doesn't mean we have to stop running experiments. Last I checked, experiments are the best way to learn. Presumably, there'll be some powerful insights for you to learn from from this whole experience. Yeah, I, I think there are going to be some incredible natural experiments that are, well, they're already being run. They're going to be analyzed. And we're going to be able to see, okay, what's the effect of, uh, you know, of, of having to work from home on productivity at a scale that's never been tested before. I think we're also going to learn something about what happens to people's creativity and connection uh, when they, they can't interact face-to-face with their colleagues. And there's a, a whole group of organizational psychologists as well as sociologists and uh, and management professors who are going to probably spend the next five, 10 years studying the effects of, of this pandemic in different places. And yeah, I guess in a way that could be another form of post-traumatic growth is we gain new insights about how to work together effectively from a distance that we wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And, you know, I wish we didn't have access to it. I'd rather not go through this crisis. I would rather that no one had to face it. But given that we're stuck with it, we might as well try to learn from it. Fantastic. Dr. Adam Grant, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.